Lord, we, um, we follow their lead, these two young women, as they have um, given expression to the hunger, the longing, the, the need, desire that we have for you. Lord, we just don't have within us what's necessary for us to live the sort of life that you invite us into. It is only as we draw from your strength and your power and your love that we can be transformed and that our lives can be the, the fullness and the richness that you mean them to be. So, Lord, take us by the hand now and lead us again. Turn our face towards you. Let us run to you and to find there our satisfaction and your riches. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. I'm David Henderson. I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant, and it is my great joy to welcome all of you here to worship this morning. You who are joining us online, we love that you are with us. You who are here in person, we love that we can be together. And you kiddos, Hi, kiddos. Love those waves, the hellos. Great to see you and be with you. Love you all. And welcome to you who are visiting with us. We're delighted that you're here in our home and, and worshiping with our family. We love that you are present with us. It's a joy for us to welcome you. Well, it's time now for our kids to head off to their children's ministry program. So kids, you can, if you're going to take part in that, head off to that great experience we've got for you. So as they head out, just pray with me, please. Lord, we, um, we open your word. We open our hearts. We are your people, Lord. So equip us, encourage us, strengthen us to live as you would have us live. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Earlier this summer, I had a great conversation with one of our food truck vendors. She was talking about how COVID has stretched all of us so thin and made life so challenging for every one of us, and how it seems like we're all more impatient with each other and, and quicker to assume that, that other people are in the wrong and that we are in the right. And then she paused and she said, essentially, you know, you, you sort of expect that out here, out here in the world. But when you see it in the church, and she wasn't talking about covenant specifically, uh, she doesn't know the covenant church, but she said, when you see it in the church, people kind of focusing on, on their own rights and wanting things to go their way and, and have everybody do things the way they want them to and, and be kind of making all kinds of allowances for themselves, but being so hard on other people. I mean, that's just sad and disappointing to see. It's not supposed to be that way, is it? She said. No, I said, I don't think it is. The Jesus that we follow calls us to be one. And when we are, he says that's part of the proof to the world that he's for real. So when that's missing, it's confusing, isn't it? So here's someone standing outside of the church and looking in and finding, to her surprise, a way of relating that doesn't seem at all to line up with the hopes and the claims and the promises of the Christian faith. A community that's supposed to be known for its love, but that doesn't seem to be able to get along. That's what this morning's passage is all about. 
This summer, if you've been here at all, you know we've been working our way through the one another sayings in the Bible. And I've described this as sort of the, the one another arc. Because as we've been discovering, as we pursue them and step towards each other and draw closer to each other, these one another's also take us deeper with one another. As we get near the end of the series now, we are arcing our way into the more difficult and challenging one another's. The earlier ones like welcoming and greeting, those were a little hard for us because they put us uh, out of our comfort zone, perhaps taking the initiative with someone we don't know, moving towards them, maybe thinking about someone else instead of ourselves in that moment. And then we move to the middle ones, caring for each other, serving each other, praying for each other, encouraging each other. And, and those are hard as well, perhaps a little harder, because in those, we begin to encounter a cost. That's where sacrifice is required. We experience a cost to our energy and our, our resources, our time. But then we come to the last couple, living in unity and forgiving one another. Living in, in harmony with one another, focusing on this Sunday having to do with how we deal with our dif differences and forgiveness uh, having to do, which we'll focus on next Sunday, having to do with our hurts and our wrongs, the way we, we wrong one another. Well, these are both incredibly hard because they just feel wrong to us. They go against everything that our feelings are telling us about what is right and what is true and what is fair. So Lord, lead us as we open your word. Lead us into this sensitive and challenging area and speak your word to us, Lord. Well, our theme verse this morning is Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. So one thing that I think is really important Kind of an obvious thing, but still important that we notice as we get started. Like most of the other one another sayings, this one is in the form of a command. I think that's really interesting to just pause and think about why. I think that means that this is, A, really important to God, or he wouldn't command us to do it. And, B, not something that comes naturally, or he wouldn't have to command us to do it. The fact is that this is not something that comes naturally to us. And that fact is made clear by the fact that on the last night that Jesus was with his followers, he prays for us as, as future followers of his in John chapter 17. It says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, these who I'm with now, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. I think that we would probably agree that the natural starting point for all human beings is to be at odds with one another. Ever since the fall, that's what comes to us naturally. We're like a bunch of hummingbirds. If you have a hummingbird feeder, you know exactly what I'm talking about. God has equipped these beautiful birds in amazing ways to extract food from flowers and feeders. And he has surrounded them with more than enough food. But even when there is plenty for everyone, 
they still can't help but snipe at each other using those magnificent bills of theirs like swords instead of straws. We don't have to look farther than the opening pages of the Bible to realize that this is what comes naturally to us. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Genesis 9, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And on and on. We don't even need the biblical witness to this. We can, we can look at this week's news feed or front, uh, front page. Hong Kong, Haiti, Ethiopia, Tunisia, Syria, South Africa, Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and on and on. We don't even need our smartphones or our newspapers to give us evidence that confirms that our, what comes naturally to us is to be at odds with each other. All we need to do is to take a peek into our own hearts and see what resides there. I started to think about examples of this and I was frustrated in my own life and I was frustrated by how quickly they came and how long my list got. So here is just one example of, unfortunately, uh, many. Over the past six months, we have made the 11-hour the drive from here to Charlotte and back, I think, four times. So that is 88 hours on the interstate. As summer has arrived and construction projects have kicked back in and people have been scrambling to finally to get out of their homes and out into the world, the traffic along the interstates has only gotten worse and worse. Okay. Exacerbating this whole mess is the increasing number of left lane Louis <laughs> who happily camp out in the left lane. They don't just camp out, they have built homes there and they have moved in, <laughs> permanently ensconcing themselves in the left lane, completely oblivious to the flow of the surrounding traffic or the number of cars that are stacking up in lines behind them. Come on, Captain Oblivious. Are you really that blind that you can't see the hundreds of signs that say slower traffic keep right? Did you sleep through that part of driver's ed? Or are you just that selfish and self-absorbed that you don't care and you're just going to drive however and wherever you want to? All those things and more, I try to squeeze into a scornful glare to which they are equally oblivious <laughs> as I huff my way past them in the right-hand lane, muttering in my mind something like, how can you be so insensitive? How can you be so clueless? There's a Christ-like attitude for you. <laughs> and that muttered judgment, I think that is really the clue that reveals our hearts towards one another. Whenever there rises up in us a sentence that begins with those six words, how can you be so blank? Fill in the blank. How can you be so cold? How can you be so emotional? How can you be so rigid or wishy-washy, conservative or progressive, time-driven or time-unaware, cautious or risk-taking, introverted or extroverted, driven or casual, perfectionist or sloppy, controlling or go with the flow? I mean, I could go on and on and on. How can you be so whatever it is that's the way that you are different from me is what we're really saying. You realize how inconvenient that is for me? How much that frustrates and annoys me? Isn't that really the issue? 
And but for the gracious intervention of God, sentences starting with those six words form in our hearts constantly, all throughout every day, don't they? And to his body, to his bride, to his beloved church, Jesus says, live in harmony with one another. There are a number of other one another passages that, that tie in with this same theme. I've clustered them into three groups. Let's just take a look at those. Some, like the passage we've already seen in Romans, hold out the goal and they extend God's challenge and invitation to us. Live in harmony with one another, be like-minded with one another, be at peace with one another. A couple of thoughts here. I think fulfilling this invitation requires some significant shifts to take place in the way that we might naturally think about our own connection to the local church. Here are three of those shifts that I think this passage implies. Especially for those of us who've been discipled really by our independent mindedness here in the United States. First, I think that this requires us to shift from a passive way of thinking about our connection to the church to a more active one. Those of you who were awake during high school physics might remember the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, which says essentially that things left to themselves will fall apart. They'll move from order to chaos, from unity to disunity. And that same principle absolutely applies to the church. Scripture calls us to see preserving the unity of the body as a responsibility that we all share, not just the staff or the session. So let me ask you this. What is the pronoun that you use when you think about or talk about the church. If we are in a more passive mode, we think in terms of they. They should do this, but we're, if we're in an active mode, that gets re revealed by the fact that we think in terms of we. This is what we should do. Each of us has a responsibility to contribute actively to the unity of the church, to reach out, to form relationships, to deepen connections, to work through differences in order to continue to knit the body together, which I'm afraid will unravel if left to itself. Yes, there was a pun in there for the one of you who noticed that. <laughs> Another key shift that has to happen in us in order for us to seek the unity and harmony of the body is for us to sh shift from thinking in terms of our own personal Christian experience and what we personally get out of the church to thinking in terms of the experience of the whole church and how everyone can benefit. This implies a shift in thinking from what benefits to me to, to thinking about in terms of what benefits us. The church, as I said a few weeks ago, is not a service station that meets my individual needs when my tank gets low. That is not a biblically faithful way to see the church. The Bible thinks of the church like we might think of a symphony or a sports team or a theater troupe. Every single one of us has a crucial contribution to make to all the others. And if we don't do our part, the others will all come up lacking. Ephesians 4 says the church will only ever become strong and mature in the way that God intends it to be as each one of us does his or her part. So here's a third shift that our thinking has to undergo, I think, and that is from thinking about some to thinking about all. The translation one another is actually a bit misleading. In English, it sounds like something that one person is called to do with one other person. But in the Greek, this literally says all, all. All love all, all serve all, all pray for all, all live in harmony with all. 
In other words, this has to do with our relationship with the whole church family and not just a few close brothers or sisters that are easy for us to get along with. I think that there is a trend today to both widen out and to whittle down our view of the church at the same time. Widening it out so much that it becomes the church worldwide, which I'm glad to be part of, but which I really can't relate to directly, and whittling it down to a few close Christian chums that I enjoy hanging out with, which is an incredible God-given gift, but isn't meant to be a replacement for the whole church family. These one another's, these all-all sayings, remind us that we are part of a community of affection, a family in which all are called to live in, human, in unity and harmony with all, not just the people that uh, we already feel the most connection with. So let me just ask you before we go on, how do you think about who has resp ultimate responsibility for the unity of the church? Do you think in terms of they or in terms of we? And how do you think about who ultimately benefits from what the church has to offer? Do you think in terms of me or do you think in terms of us? And how do you think about who you are called to relate to? Do you think in terms of some, those who are closest to me and easiest for me to get along with? Or do you think in terms of all, all ages, all personalities, all tastes, all nations, and so on? The next set of verses explore some of the things that we can do to actively undermine the unity and harmony of the church. These are some of the ways of relating that surface in us, again, naturally, apart from the gracious intervention of God, when differences arise. And they are significant obstacles that stand in the way of our unity. Let me take the second one first. Stop passing judgment on one another. This is what goes on in our hearts when we begin to look down on others who are different from us rather than simply looking across at them. It's what we are doing whenever we start a sentence on the inside of us with those words, how can you be so blank? I'm not judging. I'm just stating things the way they are. Of course, my way of relating, my way of thinking, my way of viewing things, my way of saying things is the right one. Judging is what happens when different than begins to be viewed as better than. The cluttered person sees the organized person as a controlling neurotic. Meanwhile, the organized person sees the cluttered person as an inconsiderate slob. The time-conscious person sees the present-to-the-moment person as thoughtless and selfish. And the present-to-the-moment person sees the time-conscious person as anxious and controlling. The tradition-oriented person sees the change-oriented person as a threat to the future health of the church, just as the change-oriented person sees the tradition-oriented person. And I could go on and on with those points of comparison. The thing that makes judging so easy for us to do and so difficult for us to recognize in ourselves and so hard for us to stop is the of-courseness of our own perspective. It is so painfully and self-evidently obvious to us that our way of thinking, our way of doing things is the right one. We just can't conceive that we are somehow in the wrong when we look at others who are different or do things differently as being inferior to us or wrong. Don't grumble against each other. This is what happens 
when those judgments that we make about one another on the inside of us begin to leak out into our interactions with them. This word grumble encompasses all of the looks, the eye rolls, the sighs, the tones of voice, the, the impatient urgency, the muttered asides, the condescending comments that leak their way out toward that other person that we're judging. And uh, artfully, as we think we're disguising them, they come through. And this, do not slander one another, is the way our criticalness works its way out into our conversation with others about this person that we've judged. Slandering means making public our private differences in a way that lowers the reputation of the person that we are talking about. And it is wrong, and it is a sin biblically. And social media makes slander as normal and easy as breathing. How tempting to find like-minded others and form a mutual reinforcement society for our criticism and our concerns about that other person. How easy to give free reign to our disbelief, our exasperation, our amusement as we criticize that other person who isn't in the room. How satisfying to say, how could they be so blank? And to have others nod and say, how could they? Paul's final caution, don't keep on biting and devouring each other. This verse goes on to say, if you do, watch out or you'll be tempted or you will be destroyed by each other. I'm guessing you've noticed this as well as I have. The church is both surprisingly strong and surprisingly fragile. It is so strong that it can stand against the gates of hell and prevail against them. And it is so fragile that one insensitive comment, one personal attack, one aired public grievance can tear it apart. During the last big rain that we had, a logjam formed against a rock in the bend in a bend in the stream that's behind our house. It all started because a couple of sticks got sideways with one another. Soon others piled on and more on top of those, and then they all got stuck. And that caused the stream to overrun its normal bank, and it began to erode deep cuts into the banks of the ravine. All because a couple of sticks got crossways with one another and couldn't figure out how to carry on together. So before we go on, is there some way that you have probably unintentionally undermined the unity of the body of Christ that you need to repent of? to ask forgiveness for and to turn from. The final set of verses spells out the practical posture that we are called to adopt in our effort to strengthen the peace and unity of the church. Instead of giving in to the spirit of criticism and judgment that divides the body, we are called to the discipline of bearing with one another. And by doing so, strengthening the peace and the unity of the church. Paul calls us to bear with one another in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. The Greek word behind this expression, bear with, just means hold up. It means to stay in there with each other. Keep standing, refusing to let any difference or disagreement be fatal to the relationship. In different translations, this verb is translated tolerate, endure, put up with, bear with, but it doesn't take long for us to realize that it isn't enough 
that isn't enough to ensure that we really live in peace and harmony. We can tolerate each other. We can endure each other. We can put up with each other. But if our hearts aren't right, if it's something we do while we're gritting our teeth, leaking judgment left and right, then we will only further widen whatever cracks, whatever cracks there are in our unity. That's why in both of these verses, Paul joins this verb, bear with one another, with crucial qualifiers that have to do the posture of our hearts. Yes, we are called to tolerate one another, endure one another, put up with one another, bear with one another, but to tolerate lovingly, endure graciously, put up with patiently, bear with compassionately. I love where J.B. Phillips pushes this in his translation. He says that we are called to make allowances for each other because we love each other. That's a phrase that we use often, but don't really think about what it means. But I just stop and think about what that expression, make allowance, means. Making allowance means making adjustments on our side of the line instead of requiring that that other person make adjustments on their side. That completely shifts our focus on where the source of the problem lies. The problem isn't you. The problem is that we are different. Our difference is the problem, and because of our shared love for Christ and our shared allegiance to him, we can sort through whatever differences we have with grace and with patience. I've been reading uh, John Nicholas Grew's book, Spiritual Maxims. He was a writer and a spiritual director who lived in the 1700s. I've been really loving and appreciating his writing. And he writes this. Where is the love in a person who will not bear with others, but turns to ridicule all that he disproves? Who makes no allowance for anything, not even for human frailty? With whom are we to live if we only live with those who are faultless? By, by what rule of fairness would you have others not only put up with you, but take pleasure in your company and adapt themselves to your peculiarities when you're not prepared to bear their burdens, which are quite as heavy as your own? Are you yourself faultless? And yet you feel that others should make allowances for you, at least then be indulgent towards them. Do as St. Paul says and bear one another's burdens so that you may fulfill the law of Christ. And this Paul repeats again and again in almost all of his epistles. Somebody in the church family said recently, unfortunately, I'm afraid the pandemic has more clarified the ways that we are different than reinforced the ways we are alike. I would have hoped as followers of Christ that we would have more grace for one another. That's a really perceptive and probing comment. And it brings us back to this verse and this observation that we began with. The verse, Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. The observation that this comes in the form of a command, and that means that this is really important to God, or he wouldn't command us to do it. And it is not something that comes naturally to us, or he wouldn't have to command us to do it. And then we call to mind that stunning passage in John chapter 17, which says that this unity, which is so important to God, is the very thing that Jesus is praying for us. 
to experience. He is praying that the Father would form this in us as his people. Isn't that moving and powerful and humbling to know that that is what Jesus is praying for us? The truth is that this is something that should mark us as God's people, but this isn't something that we can just muster up in ourselves. This has to be God's work. We can't just pull this out of our own pockets or, or conjure it up in thin air. But at the same time, this isn't something that we can just passively wish for and wait for. We mustn't. This is much too important to God. We have to actively seek it and to cooperate with God's inner work in us and between us with everything that we have. Let's resolve together to be a church that is defined by our unity in Christ rather than pulled apart by our differences. And here's what I believe that will mean for us. Something that takes us perhaps in an unexpected direction. I believe that means that the most important moment in our fight together for unity is not the moment when our differences surface and suddenly we find ourselves in conflict and at odds and frustrated and exasperated with one another, trying to stifle a rising, how could you be so blank, that's rising up in our hearts. The most important moment in our fight for unity together comes when we are far apart from one another, tucked into our own prayer closet being still before God, and inviting his transforming work in our hearts. That moment comes when at the start of the day and at the end of the day and all through the day, we stop and we quiet ourselves before God and we open our hearts to him and we ask that he would form the likeness of Jesus in us from within and from outside of us. The wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom from heaven the wisdom that James speaks of that is pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. God wants nothing less of us than transformed hearts formed in the presence of the Father, in the likeness of the Son, by the power of the Spirit in keeping with the teaching of his word. We are not capable of keeping the unity of the body, but God is. And as we open ourselves to be his vessels, trusting Jesus, trusting his work in us, in one another, and between us, he will make us his instruments of unity and harmony and peace. May God make it so. Would you pray with me? As our worship team comes up, I just invite you to respond to what you feel the Lord has been saying to you this morning.